Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to our 2021 review of the US-China relationship. I'm Paul Craig. I'm the founder of US-China Series. And yet again, we have a, a wonderful array of China experts who's going to help us sort of move our way through the minefield that was the US-China relationship in, in 2021. In no particular order, Bonnie Glaser of the German Marshall Fund, Naomi Wilson of ITI, Barbara Finnamore and Mahal Maidan, both of the Oxford Institute of Energy Studies, Nina Zhang of the China Money Network and Courtney McCaffrey of EY. Everyone, thank you so much for joining us today. And I can't give you enough praise and appreciation for everything you've done with US-China series over the course of the last four years. So, Everyone, thank you very much for joining. It's all very it's all too easy for me to sit there and throw a bunch of cliches at you in regards to how volatile this year was for the US-China relationship. But we've been doing this now for four years, and each year has been equally as volatile and had its own characteristics as much as the next. So instead of diving into sort of frivolous cliches and the like, Bonnie, I'm going to start with you and sort of start with something which is at a very high level, one could argue a constructive thing, which was the first summit between Xi Jinping, a virtual summit between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden. Can you talk a little bit about that summit, the background, and maybe some of the some of the optimistic things that came out of it and some of the sort of the less encouraging points? Well, sure, Paul, and thanks again for having me join. The meeting between President Biden and Xi Jinping was deemed essential by the Biden administration because the early engagements that took place in Anchorage and Tianjin were acrimonious. There was exchanges of talking points, not very constructive. There was also exchange of lists of demands. So the the Biden administration felt it was really important to get those two leaders together. And let's remember that they had gotten to know each other a bit when Biden was vice president and and when Xi Jinping was was successor waiting in the wings. So when Biden then decided to schedule this meeting, the primary objective was really to re-energize the top-level channel of communication in order to manage what the the administration sees is a, a relationship that is dominated by competition. And they want to avoid this competition from veering into conflict. They talk about putting in place guardrails and risk reduction measures. And the president really wanted to clearly convey U.S. intentions, I think, to Xi Jinping directly. There's skepticism in the United States that that we can alter Chinese domestic policies or its trajectory. Instead, we have to work with allies and partners to protect our shared interests through rules-based orders, supply chains, etc. So they they spent three and a half hours engaging on a on a broad list of issues. They talked about differences as well as areas of potential convergent interests. One of those, of course, was climate change, and others will talk about that today. In the other uh, box of potential cooperation, there is an effort now to talk with the the Chinese about how to manage what we call the strategic stability in the relationship. So missile defense, nuclear weapons, cyber space, and those issues. And and the militaries have re-engaged, and so there may be some, some progress there. The plan going forward is to address specific issues to and then task the senior officials on both sides. So U.S. officials say they're going to empower appointed officials and then those will those officials will get together and and, and discuss how to manage an issue or potentially uh, of course resolve it the us really wants to avoid 
the past pattern of dialogue being used by China to its advantage with few positive results. So they're really trying to tie future engagements or dialogues to back to the leaders. So that's sort of my summary of what came out of it. I'll just add, because we can go into this later in detail, is that there was a lot of time spent on Taiwan and both sides really laid out very clearly what their positions are, which is is a good thing to, you know, clarify policy positions, red lines, intentions and things like that. Got it. But Bonnie, I would say that, you know, post that, obviously what we've seen is further, I would argue, a further deterioration in in the relationship in regards to the the diplomatic embargo of the Beijing Olympics. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of the overall relationship? Now, for me, I think safe to say you articulated a fairly borderline constructive outcome from that, from from the conversation. And then you have this embargo, which the Chinese, let's face it, the Chinese are not going to deal with that sort of thing well, because it's such, you know, as as was the as was the Beijing Summer Olympics, which was a global coming out party. This is showing China on the world stage, and to not have U.S. diplomats, for what that's worth, attending the event and now having a follow-on effect. I think Australia's Australia is doing something similar, and I think the the UK is going to be supportive as well. It seems like a, a sort of a deterioration from that constructive conversation. Well, I think that the Chinese would have preferred uh, if the United States has not announced a diplomatic boycott of the Olympics, but they certainly knew it was coming. This was something that has been talked about publicly now for months, and there was signaling from the Biden administration that this was coming. Uh, I think, in fact, the Chinese, although they probably wouldn't publicly admit this, were pleased that there was some space that was given after the the meeting between Xi Jinping and Biden. It wasn't announced at the same time or, or even just before or just after, which I think would have been seen as a slap in the face to Xi Jinping. So the Chinese don't like this, but of course, they have said they're not inviting U.S. officials anyway. And the U.K. and Canada and Australia have also said that they are going to have a diplomatic boycott. Other countries, of course, may not announce the boycott, but in fact will not send officials to the game. So there will be, of course, many countries that that are just not going to go. We know so far only Vladimir Putin from, from Russia is attending the, the Olympics, probably the opening uh, ceremonies, I would guess. So there's other things that the, the Biden administration is doing that China doesn't like. We see the Summit for Democracy is taking place this week. The Chinese have just issued a blitz of media uh, arguing that their democracy is far superior to that of the United States and, and should be really a, a model for, for other countries. But to to be fair, Beijing knows that competition between the U.S. and China is going to continue. The United States is going to continue to take measures that China doesn't like. So none of this, I think, is a surprise to China. And we'll just have to see going forward whether we can find ways to manage these differences without having them spill over into all areas of the relationship. I'm not that optimistic about what the summit puts in place in terms of potential management of these differences and enabling cooperation in the relationship, but it does open up a window of opportunity. And I think both sides see it that way. Right. It's funny, Bonnie. I I got a text from a friend of mine who's on the organizing committee of LA 2028 
I mean, to say that they're not happy with the, the diplomatic embargo is, a, is an understatement because that Olympics is going to be the first privately funded Olympics. And I can only make an assumption that the check that Coca-Cola or Starbucks or McDonald's writes to that for those games is considerably less if there's a threat of, of Chinese athletes actually not, not being there. So that's certainly not moving in the right direction. Barbara, Put it up, be optimistic for us. And I know you can put a, you can, with these sort of things around, around climate and climate collaboration, we can, there can be a constructive argument to be made. Climate is the one clear, obvious place where the United States and China should be able to put their differences to one side and get everything and get everything organized. Talk a little bit about how the climate engagement um, evolved over the course of this year. I have my, my own disappointing views on COP, but I've Obviously, COP played a major part. And talk about where we think things are heading on the climate side. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here with this wonderful panel. And I want to start off by saying that there's always a room and need for competition on climate technologies between the two countries. It's not an either-or situation. And anything that each country can do to accelerate their climate action in this decisive decade is going to help the world avoid the most catastrophic impacts. So the U.S. is playing catch up. It has a long way to go to restore its own climate leadership. And the Biden administration is moving ahead, hopefully, with that Congress will approve. They've already passed this infrastructure bill, which is a down payment on what the U.S. needs to do to meet its own ambitious climate goals. But this Build Back Better Act that the House of Representatives recently passed, would have $555 billion for U.S. climate action, including building up the U.S. competitiveness in certain manufacturing industries and developing supply chain resilience in wind and solar and batteries. So you must not forget that this is a key part of what's going on. So, But there's no reason why we can't have both collaboration and uh, cooperate and, and competition. And to the first answer to your question, the most important thing I think we've achieved in this year is to set up uh, climate negotiations, climate diplomacy between the world's two largest emitters, as well as a platform for productive dialogue that will continue under this joint declaration. And we now learn that John Kerry and Xi Jinping, the two climate negotiators, met more than 30 times this year, both virtually and in person, to hammer out some productive results. And, and what we've seen already, in addition to the joint declaration, even though China will not ever admit that this is a result of uh, pressure from the US or from other Western countries, that President Xi Jinping did announce that China will no longer build coal plants overseas. Now, if that pledge is met, the International Energy Agency estimates that that will save more carbon than the entire EU becoming carbon neutral by 2050. Mm -hmm. It is huge. The second big result we've seen in the joint declaration is collaboration between the US and China on mitigation measurement of methane emissions, the second most populous greenhouse gas. This is a short-term super pollutant. So in 20 years, it will heat up the atmosphere 80 times faster than carbon dioxide. China did not uh, sign the Global Methane Pledge at COP26. However, it did agree in detail to cooperate with the US, starting with measurement. How do you measure methane emissions? The US has a very extensive 
methane reduction action plan of its own that it's going to be able to use in this collaboration with China to help it develop a very detailed and ambitious methane reduction pledge. So that's the second thing. The third thing is during COP21 negotiations, you'll notice that China conceded a little bit on the urgent need to keep global warming to increase increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is absolutely essential. And, And at the very end, China appeared to agree that it would revisit its uh, climate pledges next year rather than in 2030. So this is really important because China's climate pledges, as most people agree, are highly insufficient to bring us to that 1.5 degrees Celsius target. So that's why if you ask me, what's the most important thing that the U.S. and China can collaborate on in this next year, I would say and these are in the joint declaration, is working together to address shared challenges in moving away from fossil fuels. And this includes how to, what are policies that will successfully allow integration of large amounts of intermittent renewable energy. This is going to be key, even though China has agreed to build 1,200 gigawatts of wind and solar by 2030. That's just capacity. How do you get that renewable energy on the grid? How do you develop policies to transmit that renewable energy across wide geographies? That's particularly important for China because of the disconnect where renewable energy is produced and and where it's needed. And distributed generation policies that will allow storage and use of renewable energy where it's needed in the coastal cities. And and perhaps most surprising and most important is the language in the joint declaration that the two countries will collaborate to maximize the social impact of this transformative low carbon transition. I think this is the key challenge that is facing China in moving away from coal with many, many provinces highly dependent on coal. How do you transition the workers in a just way? How do you train them for jobs in the low carbon economy? There's a lot of experience in the United States, even at the, especially at the subnational level, that can be shared. So I think this working group that's set up by the joint declaration is important in that it it will include stakeholders from inside and outside government, from subnational levels, as well as the feds. So that's what I'm looking forward to see if, if progress can be made on these key challenges. I think we might see, in fact, more ambitious climate targets from China next year. Right. But Barbara, just to take that a step further. So so the Chinese announced their 2060 carbon neutrality pledge, which, let's face it, lit a fire under the region. I think Japan and Korea quickly followed suit. They were sort of scrambling to sort of to to be because China was taking the lead in all of this. But as we know, and I come from a country who is you know, very throws out throws out climate targets very readily, but won't actually use spreadsheets to determine whether these things are actually achievable. Can you talk a little bit about the disconnect between having these grandiose targets and the and the intermittent steps and the pathway to actually achieve these targets? Right, because again, you mentioned before that the Chinese come out and announce that they're not going to fund foreign coal-fired power plants didn't say that they weren't going to fund domestic coal-fired power plants, right? right? And that is that is a huge, a huge sort of, you know, it's, it's remarkably misleading, right? But, and China doesn't have a monopoly on misleading statements around climate, let's be clear. 
but talk a little bit about the steps to get to these to their their pre their pre announced targets. Right. So all China did at COP26 was announce modest improvements over its Paris climate pledges. So in other words, it now has said it will peak its CO2 emissions sometime before 2030. But despite uh, widespread pressure and concern, it didn't name a date. And it said that it didn't name how high a cap, a ceiling on what those emissions would be. It didn't say when it is going to stop building new coal plants domestically, as you said. All it says in its domestic policy documents is that it will strictly control the growth in coal consumption in this current five-year plan. What does that mean? It's not clear. And it will be phased down coal consumption sometime during the next five-year plan. In other words, sometimes between 2025 and 2030. Unless there's actual targets here and a cap on emissions, it's going to lead to the situation we're seeing now why local governments are rushing to build as much new capacity as possible before the cap is imposed. And as experts have analyzed these targets of China and its short-term targets are not going to get it where it needs to go to reach its 2060 net neutral target, except at extreme expense and dislocation. So yes, the key issue now is how to move ahead in the short term to to reduce China's reliance on coal. Coal is responsible for 70% of China's CO2 emissions, and it is the single largest source of global CO2 emissions. China is concerned about its economic sustainability. It's concerned about keeping the heat on in winter. But this kind of dialogue I'm talking about over and over again can make the point that moving towards low carbon renewable energy sources is the key to China's long-term economic stability. There's more jobs in the clean energy economy than in the fossil fuel economy. And that here's how you get there from A to B. I think that's why competition is one thing to build the hardware, but China has huge problems with its own software, with its targets, policies, regulations, and so forth. And that's what collaboration can help make a difference on. But there's a long way to go. Got it. Mahal, those of us who are sitting in, uh, sitting in the US often think that Joe Manchin's influenced by the coal lobby in, in West Virginia. But as you and I have talked on dozens of occasions about this, the coal mining industry employs more people than the population of Norway in, in China. It's incredibly politically powerful as a, as, a, as, a lo- as a lobby group. Can you talk a little bit about the influence of the coal industry, where the, where the transition actually is? And again, I feel like you and I every year talk about the hiccups that happen from coal to gas and how there's not the right infrastructure to make the transition. Talk a little bit about the, in terms of the infrastructure on the ground, in terms of making this transition and where we actually are. You know, we can be very optimistic and we can be sort of slightly pessimistic, but it's not just the coal lobby, right? It's the fossil fuel industry, the heavy industry that is embedded in China's political economy. That's how China has grown and developed so far. It's state-owned funding, the state-owned enterprises that are very much in oil, gas, coal, and again, steel, cement, everything that's tied up in the property sector as well. It has been a story of not just manufacturing growth, but all the infrastructure that grows that goes with it. And we're in a situation that, eight, that fossil fuels account for 80% of China's primary energy consumption in the next 40 years. We need to get to a situation where 80% is fueled by non-fossil fuels. 
So there's the the hardware. Thank you, Barbara. That's kind of the title of, of a paper that we're publishing and that Barbara very kindly reviewed. I think for China, it is relatively easy to build the grid infrastructure, the renewables, right? The solar panels, the wind farms. It can do that because it can take all that state capital and allocate it to these big infrastructure projects. How do you connect those renewables to the grid? How do you tackle the software? I think if we put it in the most simplistic way, the energy transition potentially implies losers, and those losers are coal, as you said, oil. I think gas is still sort of it's an open question, but the state in China cannot lose. So how are we going to undertake this transition? And I think here we see, I do think that there's a huge amount of political commitment to this transition. Don't get me wrong. I think the 3060 pledges are not empty pledges in large part because there is a recognition that it all ties together, right? Climate change, food security, industrial competitiveness. The Chinese industrial structure will not be fit for purpose in a carbon conscious world. European companies, Western investors in China want greener fuels because they need to meet their commitments and their standards. So China, for the sake of its economic sustainability and its longevity, has to shape up. And so, again, I think these commitments are real. But in the interim, the challenges are huge. And obviously, we've seen it here in Europe with the gas price, sort of with the gas crisis, which has led to debates about, yes, in the energy transition, we need to phase out fossil fuels, but how quickly? Uh, and how quickly do we get there? Because in the interim, if we don't invest in some of the transition fuels and in, in abating, sort of in, in cleaning up, right, the, the coal, the gas through carbon capture and, and storage, we could potentially be in a situation, and again, you and I have talked about this, where we have underinvestments in in gas and in other fossil fuels and, and kind of the transition fuels are not ready yet. And we find ourselves kind of stuck in the in a transition to the transition. But I think what we have to bear in mind that in China, it's not only the kind of short-term realities versus long-term ambitions. It is also that China needs to basically redefine its political economy, right? It's not just creating new technologies. It's not just sort of the, the question of social justice are huge, but this is hugely transformative for, again, the, the kind of basic political relationships in China. And that's why I think it will take time and it will take a huge amount of, of commitment from, from the leadership. The extent to which sort of I think international relations are going to be tricky here because obviously we have to avoid the kind of figure pointing and finger wagging at China and this is what China should do. And yet there is a huge amount of shared experiences and shared knowledge that could could be put to good use. Obviously, the political atmosphere right now is not necessarily conducive to that, but we have to get to a point where I think, as Barbara said, there are the competitive elements, but there's also enough collaboration so that we end up accelerating the energy transition and not slowing it. But I think we also have to recognize that this is hugely challenging for China as well. And just saying China's not committed because it's building new coal-fired power plants is, is sort of not, not a good enough way to put it or to frame it. We have to recognize that, and again, and we're sitting here in the West and we have electricity demand, energy demand in the West has pretty much peaked. But in China, there's still expectations of around a decade of growth and urbanization, as in many other developing countries. So there has to be a good answer to how China can provide more energy to its citizens while making it more efficient, making their energy consumption more efficient, but also greening greening the energy supplies. But those conundrums are very real and we have to bear them in mind. So on that point though, Mahal, given the fact you've still got a decade before you potentially reach peak energy product or peak peak energy consumption in China, does that make the, the relationship between China and Russia and obviously that centres around gas imports. Does that make that that relationship 
um, even more strategically important than it has been in the past? Potentially, I guess that kind of depends on the role that gas plays in that transition, because sort of gas right now is 8% of China's energy mix. And in sort of in a way, there is very little infrastructure for gas. And if renewables do accelerate quickly, there's still there will obviously be a role for gas. In some of the sectors that are harder to abate and flexibility in the power sector. But I think also for China and for many other countries, I think there's a huge amount of innovation that can happen again on the demand side. Right? When we think of we're green our way of life, I think about my car and how I just take my car and just make it cleaner. Again, I think there's a lot of innovation that can happen in how we think about mobility and transport and cities that will take countries on a different trajectory. Point being that China doesn't necessarily have to go through the steps that we have gone, that the West has gone through. Um, and there is a scenario where gas is a very small bridge fuel rather than a partner fuel. And in that context, there's less room for Russian gas in, in, in the energy mix. Having said that, I mean, Russia is still the lowest source, yeah, the lowest cost supplier to China right now. It is also sort of pipeline flows tend to offset the kind of seaborne flows and energy security is still a big concern. So certainly there's there's closer relations between um, China and Russia on, on the energy front, but also sort of more strategically. Having said that, I think there's it's often said in China that relations will, will, with Russia will only deteriorate so much because they're neighbors, but they will only improve so much equally because they are neighbors. Right, but that you could be having that you could have been having that conversation since the 1950s, though. And no, but just just one final point on, on the gas side of things. You hear this in the West. You mentioned you use the phrase br- a bridge fuel as part of this energy transition. And what we saw out of COP is, I think, confirmation that fossil fuel demand globally isn't probably peaking until the 2040s, right? And we could probably argue that coal does coal peaks before then, and oil and gas afterwards. But is gas destined to be in the Chinese context? That bridge, that bridge fuel between between coal and a cleaner and a cleaner energy and a cleaner energy mix. And you mentioned that gas is eight percent of eight percent of out of energy output. Does that number go considerably higher than that over the course of the next decade or so? I think it's still sort of open to discussion. We'll see kind of the oil and gas peaking plan that's supposed to be issued over the next few weeks and how whether there's a view taken on that, but. You hear often in China as well that gas is a clean fuel, certainly compared to coal and oil, and therefore that it's not just a bridge fuel, but a partner fuel. And certainly when you look at the different forecasts and some of our estimates as well, there's certainly room for gas in China's energy mix over the next two decades. It's funny, we say 8%, it's obviously it's a tiny share of the Chinese energy mix. It's still 320 BCM, which is a big chunk. That's sort of half of European demand. And even in a sort of slow slow scenario for gas, that doubles over the next decade or so. So we get from sort of 300 BCM to 600 BCM. For global markets, that's a huge chunk and it is hugely significant. So even as a kind of bridge fuel rather than a partner fuel, there's still tremendous amount of growth from a global perspective. It reaches perhaps 15% of the Chinese energy mix at best and at most. But that's, I think, where there's also a very interesting kind of dissonance. And we see this but in our conversations and our conferences, when we talk here in Europe about the energy transition and we have sort of 10 years before gas peaks in Europe and sort of 10 to 20 years, and that is you're starting to talk about phasing out the life of the infrastructure, whereas in China, in India, 
20 years, that's enough lifetime to build the infrastructure, operate it, and then have it be phased out. So there's, again, a whole world of, of economic activity that's associated with that infrastructure and that build out. So, Nina, I, I, I said at the start that there was, that this is not that I was dismissing how volatile the year was, but you know, every year when we talk about the US-China relationship, there's always something going on. But let me just read a couple of things from the, about the tech regulation that I should have made clear because we saw in 2021, because of tech regulation, the end of capitalism in China, the, the clear signs of the instability of the Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party, the end of, of Chinese equities being an investable asset globally, we saw a lot of hyperbole and, a lot, frankly, a lot of rubbish about the about the technology clampdown. Because I'm gonna, I think it's pretty safe to say that this is not the end of capitalism, and it's not the end of being able to invest in Chinese equities, and probably not the end of of Xi Jinping and the and the, and the Chinese Communist Party. Do do me a favour. Can you just plough your way through the hyperbole and the and the and the rhetoric and tell us what really happened in regards to tech regulation this year? Well, as a writer myself, so I can appreciate why you want a eye-grabbing headline. So <laughs> I can certainly feel very uh, sympathetic to, to all those writers and editors out there for those type of uh, hyperbole language. But you're right, behind those very exaggerated headlines, what has really happened during the past year in China's tech regulation is now in hindsight, is quite uh, straightforward. Beijing wants to take over control. I think that's a central uh, theme and idea and the link that basically connotes and that goes through and connects every dot. Perhaps it would be easier to uh, compare what happened in China to the US. So in the US, what's happening now is Predictable, predictably, the government and the tech sector will enter a years-long battle of how to regulate emerging new technology that has proven to be very prob problematic. In China, this battle has been done and the outcome is clear. So the government is, is pretty much without question in the driver's seat and the tech sector understands how they're supposed to be uh, behave in the future. And I think 2021 is a year when China's tech regulation saw the dust settle and saw all the boots drop and the tone has been set. So I think 2022 we'll be able to see sort of the post-storm quietness but also, of course, because of the, the 20th Congress, of course, a, a key decision for overseas staying on to power. So next year, we'll probably see sort of quietness comparing relative to 2021. And tech companies will be sort of wound leaking, leaking their wounds and putting their compliance in place and uh, thinking and adjusting their strategy so that they can probably rise again sometime in the future. In the new environment, in the new, brief, basically a brief new world where they have to operate. But you're right, those tech sector will still grow. 
those to be opportunities and and it's it's just going to be a different one. It's just going to be not the type of free reign world west in the past. It will be a totally new order, but still it's going to be quite a, a very significant, important, still potentially high growth sectors in certain places going forward. Right, Naomi, my my fourteen year old son thinks that the abuses of teenage kids in in China when they're only allowed to play video games for three hours per week is an absolute abomination. And if he could get on a plane and fly to China and save every teenage kid from the perils of not being able to play video games, he he probably would, right? So when you look at tech regulation and you look at Meichuan being fined for not paying its drivers minimum wage. Well, I I say, well, that that's what California and London did to Uber, right? And if I look at regulation of you know for-profit education, well, back in 2010, President Obama effectively banned for-profit student for-profit student loans. The same the same day that Tencent Music was fined fifty million dollars for a anti-competitive for a for a uh, for a merger that created a monopoly over over music streaming, the stock's down seventeen percent. But on the same day, the EU Commission finds Amazon nine hundred and fifty million euros, and the stock doesn't move. Right? Did Beijing just do, in regards to tech regulation, what the rest of the world wished it could do? Well, I appreciate the opportunity to argue points with your 14-year-old son. (laughs) I'm afraid I'm not enough of a video game aficionado to really do that compellingly. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, to a certain extent, the Chinese government obviously has more control than some other governments to enact changes at a top-down level. But I think that the themes that they are struggling with in the tech sector with respect to regulation are pretty similar to those of of what other countries and governments are trying to reconcile. What is that balance between the light touch regulation and letting the market decide when is that advantageous, when does it go too far, and obviously the competitiveness and the anti-monopoly issues are becoming increasingly important for governments to reckon with as a small set of companies get bigger and bigger. So I don't think that China is necessarily doing things that other governments wish they could. I think the Chinese government, from my perspective, is definitely seeking to make a point and to identify in particular that the golden children of the Chinese tech sector are not free from from abiding by the same rules. And they're making it pretty clear that that some of the actions that tech companies have taken in the past and just sort of disregard for Chinese domestic regulation, thinking that it doesn't apply to them because they are the golden children, really is not the case. I think China has slightly different motivations in terms of content control and the the influence on society writ large that they have to deal with as a product of the tech sector becoming more and more expansive and more and more a part of people's everyday lives. But I, I feel like 
generally what we're seeing right now is the parent putting their foot down and saying, nope, the same rules apply to you and you need to clear certain things with me before just going forward into new realms. So yeah, Naomi, if I could, if I could, if I could blame Joe Biden as the excuse that stopped my son from uh, to only playing video, prevented him from playing video games for only three hours a week, I'd blame Biden all day long. So you know, I wish I was a, a Chinese parents have that one advantage over over us, Nina. But just in in part of that, it, for me, it's very hard to to pull apart the tech regulation. We'll talk a little bit about things like semiconductor independence and all this sort of stuff. It's very hard for me to disentangle all of that from the whole notion of common prosperity. And if I look at investing in technology companies, for example, I don't want to be investing in in stock in companies like Billy Billy and Quasho because the era, the as I describe it, the era of the of the cat video in China is is behind us. Because those sort of companies, be them social media firms and the like, they don't serve a purpose in Xi Jinping's economic model of the future, which revolves around common prosperity, where life sciences certainly does, semiconductors certainly does, EVs and climate-related and energy independence certainly certainly does. So can you talk a little bit about the notion of common prosperity, what, what we should be, how we as investors and diplomats and the like should be thinking about common prosperity? And again, I go back to the original point, Common prosperity doesn't necessarily mean the end of capitalism in China. It's just more, I would argue, just doing a little differently. Mm -hmm. Perhaps we can think about common prosperity as uh, a sort of overarching uh, theme or the the, the backdrop of everything that happens in, in front of this, in the center stage. So I guess it's about uh, resetting mentality it's about adjusting the growth model. So, 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 so basically from, from a, a small company, a startup to big tech platforms like Alibaba and Tencent and to big state-owned companies, they should all have this in mind when they make every decision in their business. That's probably, I guess, how you would uh, reconcile common prosperity with what's happening at the same time, in terms of tech regulation, semiconductor supply chain self-reliance, and everything else. But the Common Prosperity Initiative is contrary to what some people believe that it's going to weaken the, the big platforms. I feel it's actually going to do the, the opposite, which is to actually strengthen the existing big platforms like Tencent uh, and Alibaba and Meituan and such, because they are the platforms where essential public services will be carried out, including senior care, child care, uh, health care. More of those, you know, essential public services are going to be perhaps either conducted or provided via some of these super apps. So that's actually going to entrench the sort of dominant position of those large platforms. But these large platforms are in line with Beijing. And obviously, we have seen what, what happens. So going forward, because they're so critical, they're, they're basically critical information infrastructure in China as defined in its new data security law. So they will be subject to tighter regulation, tighter oversight. 
and they will definitely be behaving as Beijing wants them to. So, so basically, it's basically aligning the interests of private sector and the government even closer, so that they can walk in the same pants and in the same rhythm. Got it. Now, Courtney, there was method in my madness for leaving you to be the last last one to speak because I know that with the Geo Strategies Group at EY, you've done a bunch of work on supply chain management within China, and I know that your yearly reviews take into account everything that we've discussed so far, be it tech regulation, be it climate, be it security, the whole the, the whole gamut, right? Can you talk a little bit about the, the the surveys that you've done and the studies that you've done at EY about the supply chain? particularly to China. And one of the things that is always very telling when you and I have these conversations is there's always a conversation about why companies should diversify from China, right? And we heard some of them just now, right? But they're not diversifying. They're not really moving away from China. And and I keep drawing the conclusion that after four decades of, of dominating the global supply chain, China just does it better than everybody else. Right. And given that and the domestic, obviously, the domestic sales opportunities, that's the reason, even with all these issues that we're discussing, that supply chain diversification doesn't happen. Yeah, thanks, Paul. And I I thought that you might be leaving me to the end to kind of bring it to the macro level. So, yeah, it's been great hearing everybody else speaking about their respective issues. And, yeah, we actually I think what you were referencing, Paul, is we actually have our, our geostrategic outlook coming out in the next day or two where we touch on a lot of these issues, not just sort of U.S. China, but also globally. And certainly supply chains and and sort of the increasing government intervention in supply chains around the world is is really at the heart of our our outlook this year. So what we're seeing is, again, it's not not just about China, but but we're seeing governments really intervene in supply chains for a few reasons. So one is is obviously sort of, we've been hearing this refrain a lot, sort of self-sufficiency in strategic sectors, whether that's technologies, increasing in the pharmaceuticals and medical equipment. There's sort of an expanding array of strategic sectors that China sees, that the U.S. sees, and and other governments as well. We're also seeing a lot more attention on sort of human rights concerns across supply chains. I think somebody earlier mentioned the EU, and obviously they have a huge huge role in all of this as well in terms of sort of shaping how supply chains develop. And there's a lot of, of sort of attention to human rights concerns and regulating and legislating around that. And then third, of course, is, is environmental sustainability. So there's a huge focus on this. Again, the EU is kind of leading the charge, but, but we expect more and more countries to be focusing in on this as well in terms of trying to capture supply emissions across supply chains, making sure supply chains are more, more sustainable, no matter where they come from in the world. And I think, Paul, to your point, all of that, again, would question companies positioning in, in China. But as you said, I mean, they just do it better than a lot of countries. They obviously have the scale, like no, no country, uh, no single country at least can match the scale of China in terms of, of contributing to global supply chains across a variety of products. They also clearly have a huge internal market that a lot of, of companies need a presence in China to, to serve that market. So yes, I mean, we, we certainly are getting a lot of questions from, from clients about all of these sort of policy developments and, and changes and how that could affect supply chains and how to build more resilient supply chains. But but I think, Paul, I mean, I, I definitely see the same thing as you, is that companies, by and large, at least, there are some exceptions, but for the most part, they're not leaving China just because there's such a, a critical sort of economic imperative to, to remain there. Right. But, Cordy, you know, in, and this is not just a US thing, it's an Australian thing, it's a European thing. 
that there is a disconnect between what, what governments want and what companies want, right? And if it was just if I, to generalise, if it was up to governments exclusively, we would have significant diversification away from China, particularly in, in pharmaceuticals and semiconductors and, and a slew of other things, industries that are viewed as strategically important. Yet, as you have said to me for the last several years, and I'm sure that the latest review is going to reveal also, companies aren't leaving, right? They, they may be adopting China plus one, they, but they're certainly staying put. Talk a little bit about the pressures that are coming on companies to make these transitions. Semiconductors are probably a good, a good sort of case in, case in point. To, and to talk about the disconnect between what governments are, are, are what they want and what companies actually trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, companies, obviously, for, for a long time, they've been built around the model of sort of efficiency, scale, sort of just-in-time deliveries, low costs. We have seen a shift, I think, in large part driven by, by what governments are sort of asking or telling companies to do. But we've seen a, a shift away from, from that, those kind of rationales, more towards the just-in-case idea of supply chain management, more about resilience. So it's not, it's not that companies and governments necessarily don't agree on the fact that supply chains should be more resilient and, and perhaps that, that means more diversified. I think that the question is sort of how they get there, how, how they achieve that resilience and how quickly. So we've seen a lot of, especially a lot of initiatives coming out of the, the Biden administration to try to, you know, reshore or, or friendshore or nearshore supply chains. We've seen other governments try to do similar things. It's sort of a question of the speed because obviously the supply chains that are currently in place took, you know, decades to build and, and you can't just sort of switch them overnight. And then there's also the question, cost is still an issue. And, and especially since we see policymakers on one hand saying they want more domestic supply chains, but on the other hand, they want inflation under control. So I think there, there's sort of a tension there, especially, again, with, in terms of the speed of that, that sort of transition. Naomi, one of, the, one of the areas, obviously, where not just with the Biden administration, even though the process has been fast-tracked, in terms of sort of strategic security over, over certain vital sectors, semiconductors is, is, is front and centre of that, of that. Can you talk a little bit about, about US policy towards semiconductor, not independence per se, because I think that that's, well, that's a long way away, but a, a policy towards becoming less reliant on the Asia semiconductor supply chain? Yeah, well, I think there's no arguing that the prime semiconductor companies have a significant presence in Asia and in East Asia in particular. So the only thing that can really be done there is to incentivize companies to build elsewhere, to build fabs elsewhere. And that's definitely the administration's intent, as we've seen with their their policy proposals. And it's the intent of the CHIPS Act, but of course, that needs to be funded. And at the end of the day, companies will have to make the determination, is that funding enough? Is it enough incentive to come to the U.S. and deal with potentially other other expenses? And of course, the initial front loading of the cost of building one of these fabs, that's significant. So I think the U.S. government is learning that there's a place for this this type of subsidization and incentive program, but we ultimately have to see 
what gets through Congress and whether it proves to be enough of an incentive to have force companies or encourage companies rather uh, to migrate. Nina, I don't know if the if the policy of the Trump administration um, was meant to play out this way, but the semiconductor embargoes were probably the most draconian measure that was imposed on the Chinese throughout the, tr- the course of the Trump administration. Clearly, there has been a push, and I think going back to common prosperity, that semiconductor independence, or, or again, moving away from a reliance of external sources of, of chips, has become a priority for Beijing. Can you talk in the same way that Naomi talked about US policy towards chips, talk a little bit about what the Chinese are doing in regards to you know, developing their own, their own independence um, in terms of infrastructure build out and, and the like? Sure. So I think for China, the, the Sputnik moment was the 2018 uh, ZTE sanction. So that event basically uh, sort of like reignited pretty old, decades-long discussion about China's heavy reliance on on, on the global and mostly foreign-dominant global semiconductor supply chain. So, So after that, there have been numerous government policies, both from Beijing and from different local government levels, to encourage China to develop its own self-reliant or sanction-free supply uh, semiconductor supply chain. So just some examples of the type of policies that have been put out. For example, like government offices or any type of official entity, they could be required to procure domestic-made computers or computers that runs on domestic semiconductor and domestic software. Or it could be a big state-owned bank initiating a big, big data database project. Then they require the infrastructure and the products, the computers, and everything will perhaps be required uh, at a certain percentage to be domestic uh, produced. So there are numerous policies like this. And on a higher level, obviously, the, the rhetoric from Beijing has quite in- intensified in terms of encouraging and calling the industry to build out the self-reliant semiconductor supply chain. But so far, because from 2018 to now, we have perhaps around three years have passed, it's a time to review how successful China has been in terms of building this up, building up the domestic substitute industry. Of course, three years is very short. And as expected, probably not going to see any major breakthroughs. But we have seen that because some of the policies I just described sort of, I guess, mandatory or definitely helps push domestic-made products onto the market and onto the users. And therefore, we have seen the emergence of a series of domestic players across the IT infrastructure ecosystem, either from chips or the the chip uh, architecture or to the software and to the end terminal. So we've seen leaders emerging, but obviously in terms of their R&D spending and their their revenue and their scale is a fraction of of their international peers. And also, of course, we've seen some challenges um, emerge during this process. 
we've seen the delay of you know the reported Huawei uh, semiconductor manufacturing plant. We've seen the delay of the Chinese-made lithography machine that was supposed to be out in 2020 and then 2021 and now probably 2022. So you just keep counting and keep pushing the deadline. But of course, if China's industry are being pushed to the corner, squeezed enough, they will be able to somehow make some breakthroughs in certain areas and eventually obtain certain level of self-reliance. So that's why on the U.S. side, the policy would have to find a sweet spot where you push the Chinese sectors, but perhaps not too much so that you sever this this interdependence and sever this reliance on on foreign semiconductor chain that eventually will will be much more destabilizing than if the two parties are connected. Right. Bonnie, I often hear that uh, in the event of a of a conflict between China between China and Taiwan, that the safest place on the planet is the investor relations lounge at TSMC, because TSMC obviously is such a vitally important part of, of, of Taiwan's economy and goes back to what Nina was talking about in terms of in terms of a reliance on on offshore semiconductors, not only in terms of production but design, which was the sort of the, the one of the major problems that the embargoes from the Trump administration created. Can you talk a little bit about about where we are with Taiwan? And more more to the point, I I can't quite work out if 2021 saw deterioration in the China-Taiwan relationship or whether it's more of the same and it's just percolating in the background and that there are so many things that will prevent China from actually acting that this is something which we'll be talking about next year and the year after and the year after that. And again, as I said, just percolating in the background. Oh, that's a that's a great uh, a great question, Paul. And I I think the safest place to be in Taiwan is underground in the bunkers. But <laughs> that's just me. China is quite concerned about U.S. policy toward Taiwan, and in fact, more concerned about the Biden administ- administration's approach than it is concerned about Tsai Ing-wen's policies. As I said earlier, this is a topic that really was quite central and occupied uh, a lot of time in the Biden-Xi Jinping conversation. I think that China is worried about the U.S. effort to mobilize countries around the world to contribute to bolstering Taiwan's security in uh, diplomatic, economic, and military ways. Uh, We've seen quite a bit of rhetoric from countries that are willing to say in joint statements at the very highest levels uh, of their leaderships that they have an interest in the preservation of peace and security in the Taiwan Strait. And the U.S. and Europe are talking about these issues, Japan, Australia. We even had the Australian defense minister say that the United States has, if it were to go to war in the Taiwan Strait, that Australia would probably go along with it. So I think that is really what what China is is quite vexed about. The other set of of issues really pertains uh, to what is driving all of this this friction in in the Taiwan it's straight. And from the U.S. point of view, it is China's military operations in Taiwan's air defense identification zone, uh, as well as just Xi Jinping's ambitions as he talks about the need to reunify Taiwan with, with China. He told President Biden 
this very common, what I see as a common Chinese phrase anyway, when they talk about Taiwan and some other issues, he who plays with fire will get burned. So this is, I think, actually likely to get worse because the Biden administration is not backing down. Xi Jinping is in the year-long run-up to his to the 20th Party Congress, where he will get a third term in office. And I think that he cannot look weak on this issue. So if he perceives that he is being challenged, he is certainly likely to take steps to defend Chinese territorial integrity and, and claim sovereignty over Taiwan. So if we fast forward another couple of years in 2024, in January, Taiwan will have its next election. And we don't know who the next president will be. But the outcome of that election is either going to lead to a little bit more stability in the cross-strait relationship. And I want to emphasize here a little bit, because even if it's a KMT president, we will not go back to the degree of stability that existed between China and Taiwan when Ma Yingzhou uh, was president. But alternatively, we get another DPP president. And then, yes, I think that relations are likely to deteriorate. The United States has made an assessment, which many of you may have heard when Admiral Davidson, he was our prior Indo-PACOM commander, he testified before Congress this past spring. He said China could invade Taiwan within six years. And I think that has been a a global uh, alarm call. It's a clarion call for countries around the world to prevent a war in the Taiwan Strait. Right. But Bonnie, one of the things that I, I, I often think about in regards to when you announce that you're ruler for life, right? The problem, is, the problem with being ruler for life, it implies that there's only one way you leave office. The problem I have with the talk about imminent invasion and the talk of the, trying to do something within six years, from Xi Jinping's perspective, the one thing that would destabilize his rule, right, to, to, be, to be glib about it, would be if he tries to invade Taiwan and fails, right? So if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm sitting in Xi Jinping's shoes, the only way that I would invade Taiwan is to know that I would be, is almost to be guaranteed that I am successful, right? Talk a little bit about sort of military capabilities, if that's okay, if you wouldn't mind, between the two sides. Because as we stand today, I think it's pretty safe to assume there is certainly no guarantee that they would be successful if they tried. Well, first, I want to associate myself with your skepticism because I'm actually of the view that Xi Jinping recognizes that there's many um, risks and potential costs of invading Taiwan. And the first begins with whether they can be successful. I would add to that whether they would end up in a war with the United States, whether half of their navy might be destroyed, whether in fact they would be able to suppress and control Taiwan without a civil war, and whether they would indeed be able to do this in a way where they would not set back the 2049 goals of achieving national rejuvenation and, of course, being dominant in all these critical areas of technology, which I think these things are even more important to Xi Jinping. So his top priority is to deter Taiwan independence, I believe, not to achieve reunification in the near term. But the question of the military capabilities is one that the Defense Department is paying close attention to. And the recently released China Military Power Report does talk about these capabilities. 
And I'll, I'll highlight a few. I mean, China has the capability to launch uh, massive cyber attacks against Taiwan, probably take out its critical infrastructure, potentially to sow chaos on the island through cyber attacks. They could probably shut off the water, the gas, not necessarily permanently, because Taiwan, I think, is working with the United States and other uh, countries to ensure that they have some resiliency. But nevertheless, China's cyber capabilities, I think, have grown substantially. Of course, China has the largest inventory of land-based uh, ballistic missiles in the world. So if it wants to destroy Taiwan through conventional weapons attacks, not to mention nuclear weapons, which I believe that China is not likely to use in a scenario, in a, in a contingency in the Taiwan Strait, but it certainly could do that. The big question that people have always asked themselves is, does China have enough capability for amphibious landing on the island to transport a very large number of troops and equipment to actually get onto the island to control the ports and the airfield? We know they can take out Taiwan's air force if, if those airplanes, those F-16, come out of the mountain and they take off. China has capabilities to shoot them down. We know that. But the real question is whether they have enough amphibious landing capabilities. And there continue to be debates about that. But I think there is a growing consensus that if China doesn't already today have the capability to invade and to control Taiwan, that it soon will. And that's this whole discussion about that towards the end of the decade or 2027. And this is also mentioned in the China military power report where there is a, a discussion about whether or not 2027 is actually the year, but it makes very clear that China will have more capabilities by then to invade Taiwan. And then the background to all this is defense spending. Taiwan's spending a little bit more on defense, trajectories in the right direction, but China spends at least 10 times more uh, than Taiwan spends. And that gap is just going to continue uh, to narrow. And the final piece of this is, can the U.S. military get there? Can we intervene in time? Can we defend Taiwan? And I think as it stands today, the U.S. military's challenge to have a credible capability to defend Taiwan, to get forces to Taiwan in, in, in a short period of time. So Taiwan has to hold out until the U.S. can get there. We used to talk about that as a matter of like maybe two weeks. My impression today is we're talking months. So Taiwan really has to beef up, you know, its capabilities to prevent the PLA from invading. And then there are other contingencies. What about a blockade? Would we break it? And then would other countries join us? So the last thing I'll, I'll say is that the the anxiety about whether or not the U.S. could actually defend Taiwan today and China's growing military capabilities to do so is what has led uh, to this, this sense of alarm in the Biden administration, because there's a belief that Xi Jinping is ambitious. He doesn't get a good information. So you and I may talk about the PLA failing, but is the PLA telling him? that they might not succeed or are they just saying, yeah, yes, sir, you ask us to do it. We're there. Well, we can get it done. So we don't know if he's getting good information from his military and from other analysts. Does he really understand the situation in Taiwan or does he think there's millions of people waiting to welcome the PLA at the beach? I think these are really serious problems. There's this view that Xi Jinping may be tempted by a window of opportunity over the course of the next decade to invade Taiwan.
Bonnie, I've never heard the PLA referred to as a glass half full organization. There we go. <laughs> That's great. Um, Barbara, sticking to the, the supply chain issues, obviously, if you're if you're an American company, you're, you're a government, you're you know, state government, whatever it is, and you're looking to build out renewable infrastructure in the United States, one place you've got to buy the stuff from is, is China. Talk a little bit about what the United States is doing in regards to sort of enhancing its own supply chain security in regards to renewable technologies. Yes. Yeah, so I will start by saying that the House of Representatives just passed the Uyghur Act that is going to prohibit imports of solar technologies from anywhere in Xinjiang. So most of the solar technology, the panels, the modules in the United States now do come from China. That has changed a little bit over the years because China has moved final assembly to other countries like, like Taiwan, like Malaysia, and so forth. So I think there's ways around this that China will continue to look at. But the fact is clear that the United States does need to beef up its own domestic manufacturing and that domestic supply chain. And so in the Build Back Better Act, it includes, it's mostly focused on tax incentives and grants and other kind of carrot rather than stick measures that will enable development of the you know, resiliency and also the manufacturing capability of the United States for renewable energy technologies. Now, wind is a little bit easier because U.S. has not been importing a lot of the wind turbines from China. They're just too heavy. So I think there's opportunities there for the U.S. to keep moving ahead as it wants to domestic wind development. But the law has to be passed by Congress. We've got, as you said, Joe Manchin sitting on it and not too happy about anything that's going to promote renewable energy rather than his coal donors. But I, I want to raise another issue here about supply chain. You mentioned earlier, and Courtney talked about this, that, that companies aren't moving from China because China just basically does it better than any country. And, and certainly with respect to climate-related technologies, China has cornered the market on things like battery production and mining and processing of the critical minerals that are needed to produce clean energy technologies. And as the world, as the US, as China, as other countries move ahead with this remarkable clean energy transition and ramp up their renewable energy. For example, China has committed to add amount of non-fossil energy each year between this next decade now in 2030 as equal to the entire renewable energy capacity of Germany every year. And U.S. has committed to become a completely uh, carbon-free electric system by 2035. The, the important thing to know that as we ramp up, these issues of supply chains are going to become more and more important. And we're already seeing that the reliance on certain critical minerals like cobalt in the Congo is having huge human rights implications, but also lithium and other components, the prices of these clean energy technologies, which have dropped dramatically, in some, some cases 90% in the last decade, are, are starting to rise again as we see shortages of these minerals leading to price increases. So one of the often overlooked areas of cooperation that is in this joint declaration 
between the U.S. and China is what China calls the circular economy. And we see this in its own peaking plans, its working guidance on carbon neutrality, the 14th Five-Year Plan. China wants to develop its capabilities to reuse and recycle these critical minerals. It already is perhaps the leading recycler of batteries as today, but it's not done right. And China's just doing it to extract as much uh, profit as it can. And it's not focusing on how to recycle either battery technologies or even solar modules, wind turbines in a way that is going to have long-term sustainability. And that's what circular economy is all about. The U.S. is just beginning to develop um, its own capability for reuse and recycling of these renewable energy components. And I think there's a lot of progress that can be made in trying to figure out ways to do so in a sustainable manner. The EU is actually already the leader in this area, and its battery initiative is designed to focus on sustainability, not just in recycling, but also in developing alternatives that use less of these problematic minerals. And here's an area where I think competition rather than collaboration is going to be key because uh, every country, US and China and EU countries are already starting to pour money into developing next generation renewable energy technologies that are not going to be so reliant on these critical minerals. And they know that whoever uh, develops, whether or not it's called the silver bullet, but alternatives that can store energy for longer than current lithium-ion batteries, for example, that have less of a reliance on problematic countries where they're the mine, where they're mined, that they're going to have a real ticket to economic prosperity. So here's an area where I think there's a race that's a very um, promising area of competition among these countries in the climate. Um, Barbara, it's funny, it's funny you say that. So we, our sister product, Climate, Climate Transformed, did an interview with a woman by the name of Megan O'Connor, who uh, literally two hours ago, who is a 32-year-old woman who has, has a, VC, a VC-backed startup company called Nth Cycle. And Nth Cycle is a company that does effectively low, incredibly low carbon extraction processes out of recycled batteries. The fact that a 32-year-old, a 32-year-old is doing this is beyond me, but this she's um, raised, raised around five, five million dollars from venture capital. This is the sort of thing that can actually be tra- completely and utterly transformative in regards to sort of clean recycling of batteries. So, so there's there's people doing it, and it's I think it's easy to be incredibly optimistic about that going going forward. Just as we move along this transition, the you know the energy transition and the like, what should the U what can the US learn in regards to environmental infrastructure? I mean, one of the great drawbacks of owning uh, an electric vehicle in the United States is that if you're a couple of hundred miles from home, there's no guarantee you get back because of the lack of charging infrastructure outside of major cities. Talk a little bit of what, uh, about some of the lessons that you know, the, the US can learn, not only at the federal government level, but at the state government level on what the Chinese are doing with rolling out, rolling out infrastructure. Quite ironic that we're sitting here to a US-China trade war and trade tensions and talking about more government directives and interventions in the economy 
and sort of where the U.S. can learn from China there. I mean, I think it is slightly complicated. It's easy to say pour enough money and enough very kind of clear signals into a sector and you will get the investments, right? Like China's been doing in charging stations and offering subsidies and and sort of, I guess, mandating, right? Reduced curtailment of renewables or again, adding sort of a certain number of charging stations or fuel cell vehicles. Is it efficient? Will it work in the US? I'm not sure. I mean, I think consistent signals financing, sort of harnessing the entire system and sort of perhaps the banking system as well is certainly positive in that it it generates the investments that are needed. Is the way China goes about it, is that adaptable to the US? I don't know. I mean, and even in China, right, we've got different provinces doing very different things. Sometimes the kind of experiments in the provincial level are extremely conducive. That kind of competition that happens within Chinese provinces is extremely conducive to, to new forms of innovation, but equally, it can be so wasteful. And sort of the lack of coordination, we often think about China as a centralized behemoth that can get a lot of stuff done. It's equally very messy, right? And there, there are things that aren't done efficiently and that lead to, just as Barbara was saying earlier, there's so many fossil fuels and sort of heavy industrial activity that provinces are trying to build now before they have to peak, right? So they're trying to get it in now before the kind of the marching orders land from the central government. So I would say consistent signals are something that would be useful. I don't think China has been good at giving consistent signals. And if anything, to me, 2021 in the energy space was all about mixed signals. Sort of on one hand, we had the 3060 drive and environmental protection and, and curbing coal production when demand was very, very strong. And so we got to September and we had this huge power crunch. Why did nobody see it coming? Was it politically incorrect to talk about strong demand in in a year of 30 to 60 of being more environmentally sustainable? Obviously, the kind of pricing mechanisms where, where power prices do not reflect the cost of, of, of coal that surged was a huge pinch point here. So I would certainly not advocate that the US lose market mechanisms or try and move back from market mechanisms. Again, clearly sort of a strong concerted messages and sort of coordinated fiscal signals and and financial instruments are great, but I don't know that they'd work in the same way in the US. So I think it's it's a it's a slightly tricky one, actually. But I wonder, and and I'm shut me up if 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 this is out of place, Paul, but I have a sort of a question also for my fellow panelists because I've been looking at this this year and it feels like there was kind of a regulatory surge, right? There was a lot of things happening in a lot of sectors, energy, environment, tech, an attempt to, to close loopholes. Again, in the oil industry, we saw it as well. And kind of a flurry of stuff that was happening. And to a certain degree, kind of after the plenum and ahead of the next party Congress, it feels like there are paradigm changes. Right, The Chinese eco- economic structure is changing with common prosperity, with, again, the kind of outlook for tech, with perhaps more assertive U.S. foreign policy. Change is coming. But then equally, I'm hearing from China as well that the regulatory window is shutting, that we need stability in 2022. And it sort of feels like we've done all this. We've had a huge amount of momentum. Now it's going to slow in 2022. I'm slightly concerned about that in kind of the outlook for for this year where, again, stability is going to trump everything and, and maybe sort of pull back on some of the gains and some of the positive stories that I think we've seen in China. Sorry, that was sort of a little bit off topic and off your question. No, Mahal, but I throw it back at you. Isn't this similar to what we saw in, in 2016 going into 2017, right? So we saw that before before the you know, the second, what I call the second coronation of, uh, of Xi Jinping, 
But in 2016, you had the clampdown, you had a massive clampdown in shadow banking. You had you had bank you had banking reform going into that. You had the the peer to peer lending business you know lost you know, basically fifty percent of the industry disappeared overnight, which left a, a bunch of investors holding holding the bag. Isn't it very similar to what we saw the year before the previous plenum, which was let's get all the half stuff done, let's make the implement the change, and then in the year of the re-coronation of Xi Jinping, think you can have stability in the life, but you have this new framework, and he can turn around in November and say, look, we did all this. So just as he turned around in 2017 and said, we've done all this banking reform and there's not the speculation and the and the, and the financial system is more stable, maybe he can turn around now in November 2022 and said, you know, all these issues with, with technology companies being too big for their boots, being too dominant, abusing your data, all this sort of stuff. Maybe these things are in place in it and it's a similar process to what we saw in 2016. Potentially. I mean, I think that's a very good read on it. You know, I think kind of the property sector are already seeing a little bit of an easing and stabilization in that respect. I would say that on, on kind of energy and, and climate, sort of in terms of the energy transition, an economic rebalancing would be hugely supportive of the energy transition, right? For China's efficiencies to increase, for its energy consumption, sort of per unit of GDP. So a change in the way it functions would be hugely important. And if she was to use the kind of political capital to mandate lasting changes to, to how provinces think about growth versus sustainability, I think that would be hugely important. And if the momentum was lost and sort of if this was all done in order for she to turn around and say, job done for now, then I think it goes back to what Barbara was saying, that we're not doing enough for China to get to its 2060 targets. I am hopeful that this is a slight easing, right? Because we've had, I guess, a regulatory backlog. Two years of COVID and the attention has been on kind of managing the pandemic. And so stuff was getting done. Now we need to slow down. And I think one of the other panelists was mentioning earlier, you sort of need to take stock and for some sectors to lick their wounds before they kind of regroup and come back. So I hope it's only sort of a slight softening of the tempo before we get back to some of the things that need to happen, market reforms, price liberalizations, again, the sustainability drive that needs to push. And I'm hoping that it's only temporary, perhaps on foreign policy, it might be a good thing that it is toned down, but on the environmental and energy side of things, I think it would be a shame to lose some of the regulatory momentum, but it's certainly an option that, that again, this slows and, and that's the end of it for now. Right. Naomi. Yeah. So from the tech sector perspective, I think we are, yes, seeing a regulatory influx, but it's also just the implementation phase of long existing priorities dating back to the cybersecurity law and now with the, the data security law, the privacy or personal information protection law. So we're really seeing the regulation, um, the implementing regulation or the guidelines coming to fruition from that. And these have been years in development that the cross-border data transfer measures, for example, first came out in 2016, 2017, and we're still just at the, the finalization phase there. So I, I think we're not likely to see things slow down. We're just going to see things shift, especially with China's increasing interest in international agreements. There are indications that they would like to join CPTPP or DEPA. They will have to ultimately harmonize their domestic regulations with 
those agreements if they want to really pursue them, which I, I think would be good for both the regional frameworks and for China generally. President Xi is clearly just seeking to demonstrate strength in advance of the party Congress, as is always typical. He still has to prove to the domestic audience that the Chinese model works for the Chinese people. So that will continue to be the focus. I think the stability part comes from, yes, cracking down on on domestic companies, getting more control of the messaging, and also President Xi's ever presence uh, in China that he hasn't left in, you know, basically two years. So I, I think we will see a continuation of that, but I don't see the pace slowing down anytime soon. Got it. Everyone, just in the in the final few minutes, I just want to get to Courtney with one question about just Courtney, everything you've heard, bring this home from a supply chain perspective. I mean, I think the annual survey that you do is over over a thousand companies, if, if I remember correctly. Talk a little bit about the sort of the what those companies are thinking about going into into 2022 in regards to not only China as a supply chain, but China's you know, China's economic outlook and all the sort of the, the political cross currents that we've we've been discussing. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I think I think kind of the big political cross currents that we see going into 2022 are really sort of this great power relations and kind of shifting geopolitical alliances among not only the great powers, but some of the other sort of middle powers in, in the region, especially in the Indo-Pacific. There's a lot of activity there on the geopolitical front. A second big theme that certainly a lot of our clients are, are thinking about is sustainability across their supply chains, in their operations, thinking about scope three emissions, going that far, how all of the reporting requirements around sustainability are going to evolve and what that means for their supply chains in, in China and elsewhere. And then the third big thing is just something we've, we've kind of been talking about in a lot of these areas is just the increasing role of governments in their economies, whether that's in China or the U.S. or elsewhere, just kind of dealing with sort of this flurry of, of policy activity and, and, and heightened you know, regulatory scrutiny. Certainly in the tech sector, lots of focus around renewable energies, as Barbara and Mahal have been talking about, but just more broadly as well, just governments sort of increasingly kind of getting themselves in the mix in terms of how companies organize their supply chains and, and their operations more broadly. Got it. Everyone, thank you. Look, in advance of the final question, thank everyone for joining. You've all been all been wonderful supporters of US-China series over the last several years. And, and I know that um, everyone who listens live and listens to these recordings loves your input and loves your contribution. I've done this for the last few years and I have no reason to, to change it. But I'm going to go down around to everyone and think and get one optimistic outcome that you can see coming into into 2022. So something that it could, it could be an outlier event, it could be something which could be a base case, but something you think is constructive for the relationship going forward. Bonnie, I'll, I'll start with you. That's tough in my area, of, uh, <laughs> focusing on security issues. I have to say it is hard to find some light in the security relationship. I guess what I would point to is that I do think that following the Xi Jinping-Biden meeting, that we are actually going to see some structured conversations. Some people in the Biden administration don't even like the term dialogue, so, but conversations, discussions to address specific issues. And although I'm less optimistic about a conversation that will lead to something to manage things like nuclear weapons, it'll be good that the militaries are talking to each other more. 
I just remain rather pessimistic, I'm afraid, about things really really getting done. But maybe what I will say is that not only will we see more conversations that I think will be productive between senior officials, but we're probably going to see more regular meetings between leaders because that's what the administration wants. So if nothing else, we will have the leaders talking to each other regularly, maybe quarterly even, to try to manage the problems in the relationship better. From the business community perspective, I would say The optimism is that the business community is still committed to the China market, even in in the tech sector where security and industry intersect, there is still a strong desire to do business in China and with Chinese companies and to expand across the region. And I think we'll see, even if there's still hesitancy on the government to government side, I think we will see a little bit more willingness to be public and to be more assertive on the industry side to say, this is what works for the global economy. We are intent on balancing security and supply chain considerations for sure, but we're not dropping out of the China market anytime soon. Got it. Um, Courtney? Yes. So I was actually going to say the same thing as Bonnie in terms of leaders just talking to each other more and more, more dialogue between the U.S. and Chinese officials. But since that's that one's taken, I will instead go to something sort of Barbara hinted at earlier in her remarks about just competition not being a bad thing. And so I think where I'm most optimistic is competition, especially in, in sort of green technologies. And even if, if it's maybe laced with a little bit more I don't know, a, a little bit more intense competition than we might want for more global stability purposes. I think the, the competition between both public and private sectors in the U.S. and China is, is good potentially for kind of addressing climate change in the long run. Um, Barbara? I think the most promising area for progress going into 2022 is the area that had the most detail in the U.S.-China Joint Declaration, and that is methane measurement and mitigation. China is the leading emitter of methane, but it has no idea how much because it has no good system for measurement. It's just based on outdated calculations, what's coming out of the coal mines. And so that's going to be the first step early next year. The two sides are going to meet and help develop a really robust system for measuring methane. We're going to see that a lot of it's coming from coal mines. And in the U.S. Methane Action Plan, Coal mines are not a big source of methane in the United States, but the U.S. has put together a very good program of working with communities where there are abandoned coal mines, not just to close down the methane emissions, but to train the people in that community for green jobs. And as I said before, I think managing the social impact of this energy transition is key. And I'm hoping that that's what we're going to see start to happen in China as well, a way to work with the most impacted communities to move them into a just transition for clean energy jobs, which is very doable. Got it. Mahal, finally to you. You sure you want to give me the last one? (laughs) 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 But let me follow up on what Barbara said. I think the dialogue on methane is hugely important, not just for bilateral relations, but also if we manage to get some standards globally on methane, that would be a huge step forward. And I guess from a fossil fuel perspective, even more gas, you know, from fossil fuels in US, China, more gas from the US to China would be good in in reducing costs and phasing out coal. 
Perfect. Everyone, thank you very much. I hope everyone does have a very healthy and uh, and happy 2022. And I mean, everybody, again, thank you all for being such supporters of US-China series. And we'll see you all in the new year. Thank you. Same to everyone else. Thanks, everybody. Bye for now. Bye.